Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another Monday evening where we have the opportunity to continue our reflections into this call we have to witness to our faith. Uh, this evening, I'm going to do something a little different. I have found myself in numerous conversations over the past few weeks as it relates to the Shroud of Turin. And you could be rest assured, my friends, that while our faith is filled with mystery, I don't know if there is any one thing, if it's not the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, that has captivated the imagination of believers and non-believers alike, like that of the Shroud of Turin. So we will reflect into the Shroud of Turin. We will get into its history for sure, but we will also consider uh, in light of what science has discovered, its impact upon our faith? I think that's an important question we need to ask. Over the past few weeks, we have been spending a great deal of time on this topic of mystery, huh? And how, by our very nature, we are drawn to the unknown. We are captivated by the unknown. And so it is no mystery that we are captivated by mystery, and certainly like that of the Shroud of Turin. Uh, given our limits of time uh, this evening, I'm just going to go ahead and jump right in, and I thought a good place to start would be the Gospel of John, chapter 19, because that might be our best account where we have the mentioning of the Shroud. And I'm going to go to John, chapter 19, verse 38, and read through John, chapter 20, verse 10. So if you have your Bibles out there, Go ahead and pull them out. Again, John chapter 19, verse 38, the burial of Jesus. Verse 38 reads, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had first come to him by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb where no one had ever been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, as the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter then came out with the other disciple, and they went toward the tomb. They both ran. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look, look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying and the napkin which had been on his head, 
not lying with the linen cloths, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know this scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Okay, there you have it, my friends. Certainly an episode that um, is carried out by all four Gospels, uh, but maybe um, the most extensive there in the Gospel of John. So what is the shroud? Well, the shroud of Turin is a long linen cloth made out of flax and measures approximately 14 feet long and 3.5 feet wide. Um, And by the way, I'm primarily drawing from uh, shroudencounter.com, among other outlets, for our reflection by way of resources. So the shroud bears a faint image, okay, of, as many of you know, a bearded, crucified man with bloodstains that, for all intents and purposes, match the wounds of crucifixion suffered by Jesus of Nazareth, as recorded once again in all four gospel narratives. By way of snapshot, historically, it has been in Turin, Italy, since 1578. It was there for over 400 years. Prior to that, it was in France for another 200 years, beginning in 1356. It has been preserved and revered for centuries as the actual burial shroud that wrapped Jesus as recorded in the Bible. It was owned from 1450 to 1982 by the royal uh, Savoy family until the former king of Italy, Umberto II, passed away and, as many of us know, willed it to the Catholic Church. The shroud has been displayed for numerous public exhibitions over the past 650 years. While in Italy, the Catholic Church has acted as a custodian of the cloth, even though it was officially owned by Uh, the Savoy family. Now, the history prior to its arrival in France is not continuous, and therefore, my friends, this has allowed critics to allege uh, it's the work of some medieval artist. However, the discovery of a key document in 1993 confirms that the shroud was in Constantinople and was stolen by the Crusaders during the Fourth Crusade. And this is important because, as we'll get into, this bridges the gap between 1204 and 1356 when the Shroud's whereabouts was in question. Some say it was in possession of the Knights Templar who participated in the Fourth Crusade and were said to venerate a mysterious image. Now, this finding, in so many ways, is quite monumental because it validates a historical trail to at least the year 544, when the image not made by hands was discovered in southern Turkey, specifically Edessa, uh, Turkey, and ultimately became the genesis for all Byzantine and Orthodox icon images of Christ that followed. On Tuesday evenings, we have been spending a great deal of time talking about um, Byzantine art and icons and the wonder and the beauty of these magnificent displays of art and how they really do act as windows into another reality, it is worth noting that these icons use the face from the shroud in an attempt to replicate its dimensions so as to really captivate 
what is believed to be the face of our Lord. Now, many scholars believe the shroud and the Edessa image are, for all intents and purposes, again, my friends, one and the same. Interestingly, two coins were minted in 692 under the reign of Emperor Justinian II. They were the first coins ever minted with an image of Christ and appear to be based on the shroud image as indicated by what is known as 180 matching points of congruence between the shroud image and the coin image. I believe that to be quite fascinating. Now, in 944, the cloth was taken from Edessa to Constantinople. The sermon delivered by Gregory, the archdeacon of the famous church, the Hagia Sophia, clearly describes a full-body image on the linen. In the 11th century, a Greek chronicler by the name of John painted a picture of the same event as part of an illustrated manuscript. It clearly shows the general of the army presenting a long linen cloth with an image on it to Emperor Romanus I. Again, these are relevant points to be thinking about in its history. Now, following the Fourth Crusade, when troops from Venice and France looted and burned the city, a letter of protest was written by Pope Innocent III, and the letter documents this horrific event and what was stolen, including, and I quote, the most sacred of all, the linen in which our Lord Jesus Christ was wrapped after his death and before his resurrection. These and other historical clues, certainly, my friends, provide a history stretching nearly 1,500 years. Now, there is a legend of King Abgar that may stretch the history actually all the way back to the first century. It is a story of how a cloth with an image on it was sent to Edessa from Israel at the time of Christ. One Jude Thaddeus, who we may know, was said to have taken it to him after Agbar's request for Jesus himself to come. Agbar was dying of leprosy, and upon beholding a quote-unquote mysterious image, he was healed. He became a Christian and commanded all pagan idols to be burned. Again, that is legend, but certainly that legend fits the history. Now, as it relates to the science, <laughs> and I know this is what many of you out there are so interested in, there are so many points to be had that really do offer us more insight into what makes this image so astounding. So the Shroud, in 1898, was photographed for the first time. These first pictures led to the discovery that the image on the cloth is actually a negative. The image becomes positive in a photographic negative. This discovery startled the scientific community and stimulated worldwide interest, and again, ultimately became the genesis of uh, so much scientific interest. Now, in 1931, a man by the name of Giuseppe Henri photographed the shroud again with more advanced film technology that confirmed, essentially, what was discovered in 1898, that the shroud is indeed a negative image. 
copies of Henri's photos were circulated throughout the world, prompting even more scientific inquiry and even more interest. Now, in 1950, a doctor by the name of Pierre Barbet, a prominent French surgeon, published a work titled A Doctor at Calvary, where he documented 15 years of medical research on the shroud image. He described the physiology and pathology of the man on the shroud as anatomically perfect. I find that to be uh, most interesting. Another fascinating discovery comes to us in 1973, where a noted Swiss criminologist by the name of Max Fry was given permission to take dust samples from the shroud that contained much pollen. And he discovered 22 pollen species from plants that are unique to areas around, well, where would you guess? <laughs> but Constantinople and Edessa, and seven pollen species from plants common only in Israel. Here, my friends, uh, science appears to corroborate with the historical trail, huh? Most fascinating. In 1975, Air Force scientists John Jackson and Eric Jumper, using a VP-8 image analyzer designed for the space program, discovered the shroud image contained encoded 3D data not found in any ordinary reflected light photographs. So what does this mean? This discovery indicates that the cloth must have wrapped a real human figure at the time the image was formed. Again, my dear friends, you can begin to see as we go through this that there are little clues that begin to add up to something, huh? In 1978, the shroud was on public exhibit for the first time since 1933 and was displayed for six weeks. At the close of the exhibition, 24 scientists comprising the Shroud of Turin Research Project analyzed the shroud for five continuous days, working in shifts around the clock. This was very important to certainly the scientific world. In 1980, National Geographic ma magazine published a landmark article on the shroud, further propelling the cloth into the science limelight, calling it one of the most perplexing enigmas of modern times. That same year, microscopist Walter McCrone, who was not part of the initial shroud project, was given several fibers to analyze. After finding iron oxide particles and a single particle of vermilion paint, he broke ranks with the shroud scientists who had agreed to make all findings public the following year. McCrone proposed that the shroud was a painting of red ochre paint created from iron oxide particles suspended in a thin binder solution. However, McCrone's findings in no way agreed with any of the highly sophisticated tests conducted by two dozen other scientists. His claims have since been dismissed. And it turns out that the iron oxide is a natural result of soaking the linen for days where iron ions uh, from the water attach to the fibers and oxidize. The particles are randomly distributed over the entire cloth. Now, in 1981, after three years of analyzing the data, the Shroud of Turin Research Project 
made their findings public at an international conference in Connecticut, all the scientists agreed upon the following statement. We can conclude for now that the shroud image is that of a real human form of a scourged, crucified man. It is not the product of an artist. The blood stains are composed of hemoglobin and give a positive test for serum albumin. Now, I highlight that because <laughs> in 1988, and certainly this is where a lot of the uh, confusion sets in and a lot of the controversy, the shroud was carbon dated by three laboratories in Oxford, Zurich, and Arizona. They indicated a date range from between 1260 to 1390, indicating that the cloth was only about 700 years old. Now, this certainly was earth-shattering news to many because it would seem to contradict the conclusions of the uh, Shroud of Turn research project and put into question the Shroud's possible authenticity. We'll speak to that more in a bit. In 1997, a prominent Israeli botanist and a professor at Hebrew University confirmed the presence of flower images on the shroud. He verified 28 different pollen species and or plant images. Many are from plants that grow only around Jerusalem. And I just believe this to be most fascinating, my friends. Um, and it kind of brings us back to the discovery of Max Fry in 1973, how these pollen species seem to uh, corroborate the historical trail of uh, the Shroud of Turin. Now, continuing with some of our history, uh, in 2002, the Shroud was restored to remove uh, charred debris from the fire 1532 to aid in the Colossus preservation. And so, at that time, all the burns and patches from the 1532 fire were removed. The shroud was attached to a new backing cloth as well. In 2004, uh, a textile expert by the name of uh, Fleury Lemberg revealed that the stitching of a seam on the shroud that runs the entire length, known as the side strip, is typical of Jewish burial shrouds found in Masada, Israel. Now, in 2005, we have an important observation that really counters what took place in 1988. I believe this to be very, very important. In 2005, a man by the name of Ray Rogers, a thermal chemist, followed up on the latest spectroscopic data showing the material of the corner cut for carbon dating actually might be different from the rest of the shroud. He obtained thread samples from the C14 corner and thread samples from the interior of the shroud. And additional microchemical and spectroscopic tests showed the samples were not the same. Results published in a peer-reviewed journal confirmed initial concerns. The sample cut for C14 dating is from a medieval reweaving and actually not part of the original shroud. Ray Rogers concluded... The radiocarbon sample was not part of the original cloth of the Shroud of Turin, and the radiocarbon date was thus not valid for determining the true age of the Shroud. Now, Rogers also determined 
the evidence of a matter root dye used to blend in the color of newer threads with the more yellowed threads of the original cloth. He also found cotton and starch in the C14 sample, but not from the main body of the shroud. Starch was used to stiffen the cotton in order to make the repair. So again, what does this mean? That the carbon dating tests of 1988 are now considered by many to be in many ways a complete debacle. So my friends, with all of that being said, let us just offer up a summary of some key facts and then consider its impact. By way of summary, what were the actual tests performed by this research project? They performed particle analysis, chemical analysis, blood analysis, photomicroscopy, spectroscopy, x-ray radiography, infrared thermography, x-ray fluorescence spectrometry. The results, no inorganic pigments present, no substances manually applied to cloth, no artistic substances are on the cloth, no collagen binder as would be used with paint, blood tests that reveal a blood type of AB positive with human DNA. As uh, one doctor noted, the blood marks seen on the shroud are consistent with a contact transfer to the cloth of blood clot exudates that would have resulted from major wounds inflicted on a man who died in the position of crucifixion. And the research project's conclusion, it is clear that there has been a direct contact of the shroud with the body, which explains certain features such as the scourge marks as well as the blood. However, while this type of contact might explain some features of the torso, it is totally incapable of explaining the image itself. There are no chemical or physical methods known which can account for the totality of the image, nor can any combination of physical, chemical, biological, or medical circumstances explain the image adequately. This is most striking, my friends, when you start to think about what we're talking about, that this is the world of science who works on objective facts. Now, the question remains, is this the burial shroud of Jesus? If the shroud wrapped a human corpse, as several medical forensic specialists believe, and if it originated in Israel, as so many botanists believe, can it ever be proven to be Jesus? What it proves is by inference, blood on head from crown of thorns, abrasions and bruises on face, wound in the side, over 120 scourge marks, blood on the arms, nail wounds in the wrists, nail wounds in the feet, legs not broken, most importantly, post-mortem blood from side wound and on the back. Legs are pulled up due to rigor mortis. Blood is from actual wounds and shows evidence of gravity from a vertical position and no stains of body decomposition. Fact or fiction, my dear friends, science cannot render a verdict. It remains the world's greatest unsolved mystery. 
But to quote one historian, John Walsh, and I believe this to be so important, (laughs) it is either the most awesome and instructive relic of Christ in existence, or it is one of the most ingenious, most unbelievably clever products of the human mind and hand on record. It is either one or the other. There is no middle ground. You know, by way of closing, I want us to think about this. So often we move on evidence, and when there is rational evidence that points to something, we make conclusions based upon that evidence. We have been given the capacity to reason, and logic is the instrument to reason. So I would encourage you to apply both faith and reason to something like this. And while the church has never made a definitive statement on the Shroud of Turin, It certainly encourages us to consider the Shroud of Turin as something of the supernatural. If you're to go back into our papal history, we have a great number of popes, as recent, of course, as Pope Francis, who certainly speak to it in the context of something extraordinary. And while they can't speak to it in definitive terms, they at the very least have encouraged uh, a reflection on the Shroud of Turin because of the way in which, based upon its science, it can increase our faith in little ways or big ways. Either way, the Shroud of Turin is there for contemplation, and contemplation we should give it, because if we don't, I think we would miss out on an opportunity, at the very least, to go deeper into our faith and glimpse into paradise, mindful that the marks on the icon itself, as some scientists speculate, were caused by a burst of radiant energy. We can say light energy. You know, it's interesting, recently popular speaker and author, Father Robert Barron, while reflecting into the transfiguration, spoke of the great light that was emanating from Christ. And he says, this light seems to signal the beauty and radiance of a world beyond this one a world rarely seen, only occasionally glimpsed amidst the griminess and ordinariness of this world. Now, I thought that to be a pertinent reflection, because if this light energy, if this burst of radiant energy is in fact what gives us the Shroud of Turin, we are made again to contemplate this light, the significance of this light, that this light might afford us an illumination and glimpse into paradise. Now, we know that Christ is the light of the world, and as a light, we are drawn to it, and we share in this light. We share in this light by reading the Word of God, sacred scripture, but also as Catholics by receiving the Word of God incarnate in the Eucharist. I cannot help but think that the Shroud of Turin is a gift, a gift of illumination, that might draw us only deeper into the great mystery that is the Christian and Catholic faith. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. 
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.